Hey guys, welcome to episode 30 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we have some exciting news for you guys. I mean, if you follow us on Instagram or Twitter, you you probably already know, but we were featured on a list by CrimeReads.com as being one of the 12 true crime podcasts that'll feed your true crime obsession and the essential podcast of the summer of 2018. Yay us. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's really an honor to start getting recognized by people, especially like true crime magazines and things like that. So we really appreciate anyone who really spreads the word about us because that's how podcasts kind of get bigger is by their listeners spreading the word. So obviously you guys are doing that and and we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks guys. We appreciate it. It's like a little snowball effect, you know? It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Slowly. It's very slowly. <laughs> yeah. But now um, we're going to ask for a little bit more help from you guys. Already you've done so much with the awesome reviews and the Patreon support. But if you haven't done so already, please leave a review on iTunes or the podcast platform that you're using. It really can help us out. And sometimes people can be, I don't know, a little rude, a little (laughs) crazy on their reviews. And we try not to take it to heart because you really can't or else we drive ourselves crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we do appreciate when you guys leave us amazing reviews. They really keep us going because it's always disheartening to get a bad one. But then when you see like, three good ones after it. It always makes you feel so much better or someone saying they just discovered us and now they're binging and it really helps because those bad ones kind of stick with you, I guess. They do. Um, But I mean, it is good though to get constructive constructive criticism. Yes, absolutely. So I mean, that's always good too. So we like that. Yeah, we do like constructive criticism. It's different. I mean, there's a difference between being uh, constructive and being a mean person. (laughs) But that's okay. Yeah. So you don't have to write anything down. You can just send five stars our way and you'd be helping us grow and look great for sponsors out there. Also checking out the promos that are offered by our sponsors help us tremendously. So put in the promo code or visit the website. Just check it out and see what they have to offer. We promise we'd never endorse something that we don't like. So it'll always be worth your time. We promise. Okay, so with all that stuff out of the way, let's get started with the episode. Unfortunately, history repeats itself. I could say the words to you, racism, violence, torture, and lynching, and you wouldn't know if you were going to hear a case from the colonial times, pre-Civil War, or post, or maybe it could be during the second revival of the Klan post-World War I, or the Civil Rights Movement of the 50s and 60s. But this case isn't that. It does involve the things that I mentioned above, But today we're going to talk about what would become known as the Massey Affair. In 1931, a young, beautiful wife of a naval officer stationed in Honolulu, Hawaii, was raped. It still remains a mystery as to what happened to her. But what happened afterwards is quite clear. Racism, violence, torture, and a lynching. The Massey Affair brought to life the pent-up aggression of the native Hawaiians, as well as the aggression of those who believed that they were entitled to the island. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The case we will be talking about today is going to take us back to Hawaii in the 1930s. This, in fact, generated so much attention in 1932 
that 200 stories were written about this incident just in the New York Times alone. Wow. Yeah, it, it's a firestorm. First, let's talk about the atmosphere of Hawaii during the time this crime was going to take place. Racial tensions in Hawaii were high between the native islanders and the people that they called Haoles, or people that are not from the island, white people. If you're white, you're not allowed to say that word, by the way. Oh, really? Thanks, Reddit. Is yeah. it like a, like a rule? Yeah, it's kind of like you can only say that if you're like a Hawaiian islander. So gotcha. like That's their like word for like the white people on the islands. Okay, got it. American involvement began on the Hawaiian islands in the mid-1800s when American farmers were interested in the tropical crops. When the monarchy of Hawaii put restrictions on the Americans who had come in and were getting rich off of their crops, the farmers and their lawyers appealed to the U.S. government, asking them to assist in the takeover of Hawaii so they could successfully run their businesses. This was approved, and Hawaii was deemed a republic as Queen Lili Lokilani was overthrown and the provisional government took power on July 4, 1894. The American president who approved it was Grover Cleveland. However, when he heard stories about the Queen fighting to return to power, he issued an investigation into what happened in Hawaii. The report was known as the Blount Report, and this report showed that the removal of the Queen was definitely illegal. Cleveland demanded the provisional government step down, but tasting power and gaining more money than they ever had before, the provisional government, who was made up of the farmers and their lawyers, refused to do so. Four years later, the United States, under the order of President McKinley, annexed Hawaii, making it a U.S. territory. America needed Hawaii as a naval docking and fueling station, especially during the Philippine-American War. This naval base was known as Pearl Harbor. Eventually later, they're going to have Army Marine bases on Hawaii as well. This is important because it establishes who was in control in Hawaii at the time of the crimes we're going to discuss. So if you think about it, the people that are in control are the white farmers, lawyers, like rich white people are controlling the Hawaiian government. Right. And can, and ruling over people who have a strong distrust for so them. So essentially the farmers and the lawyers and all the people involved in those companies are like the puppet master right now. Yes. Got it. So that causes a lot of tension. I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. By 1928, there was an influx of immigration to Hawaii, one of those groups being the Puerto Ricans. This is due to hurricanes that devastated their own islands at the time. So they needed somewhere to go, somewhere that was familiar to them. And sugarcane plantation owners were recruiting Puerto Rican workers because of the experience they had on sugarcane plantations. That makes sense. Yeah. There was also a massive influx of Koreans as they were trying to escape the ruthless and tyrannical rule of the Japanese government. This increase in population was hard and expensive to maintain. So now there is quite literally trouble in paradise. Now, they generated a lot of money by having U.S. naval bases and Marine and Army bases there. So it was kind of like they didn't want the American military officers there, but they needed them there in order to sustain the island because of the grants they were getting right, from I mean, the federal it's, government. It's definitely a necessary evil, I'm sure. If I mean, if they're making money... They're not going to want them to go away. <laughs> right. But they're, at the same time, they don't want to take over. <laughs> well, the government right. doesn't want them to go right. away, which makes yeah. complete sense. But then these islanders who were getting along fine before the involvement of anyone are just so angry that this has become a necessary evil. Right. 
So getting back to the cases at hand, before the big case that we talk about today, there's going to be another case that basically is just going to further charge up racial relations on the islands of Hawaii. This occurred just three years before the main case we will be discussing today. On September 18, 1928, a Japanese-American hotel worker, Miles Fukunaga, was angry about the eviction notice his family received from Hawaiian Trust, which was a bank in Hawaii. Himself and his seven siblings would now have nowhere to live. He didn't think they would make it on the streets of Honolulu. He decided that if the bank was going to hurt his family, then he was going to hurt the bank. He went to a nearby school, the Luna House School, and told the school administrator that 10-year-old Gil Jameson's mother had been in an automobile accident and he was to take the boy to her. Gil Jameson was the son of the vice president of the Hawaiian Trust Company. Fukunaga wrote a ransom note to the victim's family, demanding $10,000. The boy's father got the money together and met Fukunaga at the designated location. He gave the boy $4,000, but would not give the rest until he saw his son. But Fukunaga took the rest of the money from him and ran. He ran because he couldn't show the father his son. One hour into the abduction, before the ransom note was even written, Fukunaga struck the boy with a steel chisel and strangled him to death. Eventually, Fukunaga was caught. Before Jameson gave the money over to who would be the murderer of his son, he had informed the police about the kidnapping, and all of the bills were marked. So a similar thing had taken place with the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. And that's actually what led them to Houtman, the man who was accused of being the one who kidnapped that baby. Right. So the police know that that's what they need to do in ransom situations, especially involving children. And Fuganaga was eventually caught because he was trying to spend the money. And the 19-year-old was sentenced to death by hanging. Very quickly, the trial took place in two weeks. Death by hanging. People were very upset, especially the white people on the island who now felt like they were being victimized. Now, this case, for its obvious reasons, increased racial tensions between whites and non-whites on the island. The whites were outraged that a young boy was kidnapped and murdered. Were their innocents safe on the island? But at the same time, the Japanese community was very upset, and they protested the trial and the appeals of Fukunaga. Not because they supported him, but because prior to this crime, there had been two separate occasions where a white citizen murdered Japanese victims and the death penalty was not sought. So how is one life more than another? And that's basically what the court systems of Hawaii were saying, that a white life is more important than a Japanese life. Well, that's not fair. Yeah. At all. (laughs) And it seemed like Hawaii was just at the brink of a racial war. And I'm sure it also was also, um, the fact that you had also rich and poor. Yes. Maybe. There's the haves and the have-nots. Okay. People that got rich from the sugar plantations or the tropical crop exports that were coming out of Hawaii. And then you had the people who were from the island and it was extreme poverty. And that's kind of what we're going to see with this case. Rich versus poor is going to be an underlying aspect of this case too. Another thing that added to these tensions was American military presence. Pearl Harbor was the home of the American Pacific Fleet, and the Schofield Army barracks weren't far away. Between 1930 and 1935, there was, at any given time, 
between 15 and 20,000 military personnel in Hawaii. Many Hawaiian families were unhappy with the fact that their daughters were marrying servicemen because when their duties were up, they were moving their daughters to America. So it was like basically like you're taking your daughters away from them. Right. Like you probably won't see him again for yeah. a while <laughs> or if ever. From his book, A History of the Hawaiian Islands, historian Gavin Dawes explains that an officer at the time, Navy or Army, and especially those from the South, don't forget, we're talking about Jim Crow era laws here. This is what was happening in America. So these army officers who were coming, or naval officers who were coming from the South, saw the islanders not as the original people from the island of Hawaii, but they saw them as the African Americans were seen on the mainland. This racism that existed was the embodiment of all that was the worst in human nature and led to the further distrust the Hawaiians had for their white invaders who came to their home and established dominance. So that's what Dawes is going to say in his book. I mean, I think it's just, it's a sad aspect of American history, but just like any type of history, we have to be aware of the bad as well as the good. And if it's Jim Crow era, we know that the viewpoint of these white military men is going to translate when they come to the island. So it's going to be the same thing. Right, of course. So you have to think like that that idea of dominance in their mind is going to translate to the Hawaiian Islanders and the other immigrants that are on the island. Makes sense. Yeah. And it's not just, it's a violent racism. That is going to happen a lot on the island, that there's going to be physical attacks. And we'll, we'll talk about it because they're all going to be highlighted by the fact that this case took place. So the couple that the case is centered around is Lieutenant Naval Officer Thomas Massey and his wife, Thalia. Thalia came from a prestigious family. Her mother was first cousins with Alexander Graham Bell, and their grandfather was the first president of the National Geographic Society. At a young age, Thalia's mother chose to have an affair with Major Granville Fortescue, who was first cousins with Theodore Roosevelt, beloved American president. The result was Thalia herself, meaning that a marriage was in order for the two. Thalia then was raised in an upper-class lifestyle during her childhood. However, her parents had a very unhappy marriage, and she wished to leave her house as quickly as she could. It seemed as if Thalia's mother thought that there was going to be more money involved in the marriage to a Roosevelt, but it was nothing like what she thought it was going to be. And Granville Fortescue was a heavy drinker with a heavy hand. And it, it seems that Fortescue, who actually was one of the Rough Riders with his cousin Theodore Roosevelt, so he was there during the Spanish-American War. Oh, wow, fun fact. Yeah. He is going to kind of rely on the fact that eventually his wife, Grace, who is Thalia's mother, is going to inherit a family fortune from Alexander Graham Bell. Obviously, like, the inventor of, like telephone, phonograph. That's big. Yeah. yeah, it's a big fortune. So because he knows this is coming eventually, he doesn't want to work. So it's like bizarre. It's like they have a really like rich family line, but they have no money. So they're struggling to keep up with the Joneses, but they don't have anything to back it up. Which is odd. I it is like. weird, and I... especially during the Depression. Yeah. Well, that's true, too, actually. No, I think, but, but he just, he refuses to get a job because he's just waiting for his wife's inheritance to come through. That's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the kind of the household that Thalia grew up in, and she wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. 
1927, at the age of 16, Thalia does find a way out of her home. She marries Lieutenant Naval Officer Thomas Massey. However, Thalia quickly found herself understanding her mother's situation. Massey, who at first appeared to be a handsome and charming sailor, a hero that would take her away from her family, turned out to be a heavy drinker and very verbally abusive. And he also wanted Thalia to become a party girl, you know, a lot like the other naval wives. So it seemed like in Honolulu and the area in which he was stationed, there was a lot of partying going on. Right. I mean, So he wanted her to be involved in this partying just as much as he was. Right. And because she wasn't so into it, he kind of resented that in her. So that caused a lot of tension between the two. That's so bizarre. Only because if that was my, you know, wife or what fiance, girlfriend or whatever, I'd want the opposite. I would want like a very like, you know, nice, clean cut, respectable, you know, hardworking, I don't know. Well, I think that. Structure? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that was the lifestyle on the island. Maybe not. And all the other naval wives seemed to be involved in the heavy drinking. Yeah. So the fact that she wasn't, she also thought she was better than everyone else because of her background. Right, so, but most people would if, I mean, coming well, from she, that kind of lineage. But she was very, like, snobby about it. Right. So people didn't even like being around her. So I think that led to tensions in their marriage as well. So despite the fact that they were deep in Prohibition era that lasted on Hawaii from 1920 to 1934, even though it technically ended in 1933, the territories were allowed to end it when they wanted. Okay. So that didn't get passed till 1934. Interesting. Massey loved going out and drinking at the Alaway Inn in Honolulu with his crew and their wives. This was considered, by all accounts, to be an out-of-control club where men and women drank in excess and fights were a natural occurrence. It seemed like telling people that they couldn't drink made them want to drink more. But it is for this reason that Thalia had no interest in going to the inn. Now, Thalia is going to be a victim in this case, but we do want you to get a better understanding of, of what took place, the whole picture. And in order to do so, you must know that people did not like 20-year-old Thalia. She acted like she was better than everyone and often raised an eyebrow and laughed when her fellow Navy wives discussed their poor upbringings or their struggles with their children. The fact that she had begun taking classes at the University of Hawaii also made her feel like she was better than those around her. Thalia felt like she was too good to even be in the same room as her husband's fellow servicemen and their significant others. And if... That is the way she treated her fellow Americans. Imagine the way she treated the natives on the island or the Asian immigrants. So she wasn't the nicest of people. <laughs> no, I don't think no. people wanted to be around her. I guess you're right. Yeah. Because <laughs> when you when you say that, I can now I can I have a better picture in my head yeah. as to like what she could say to these people if she treated fellow Americans like that. I don't even want to know how she treated other she people. Did. Yes. So this brings us to the night of September 12th, 1931. Massey wants his wife to accompany him to the inn. Of course, she doesn't want to go with him, but he twists her arm until she agrees to go. Figuratively, not literally. He doesn't get abusive. So she told him that she didn't want to go downstairs with him, that she would remain upstairs. And at the inn, all the heavy partying, especially amongst the Navy men, took place downstairs, and those only looking to have a few drinks sat at the tables upstairs. So she just told him, I'm not going downstairs with you. Just to, like, a little side note, 
this night she was wearing a like a green ball gown with fur trimmings so like that's kind of woman we're dealing with here okay yeah (laughs) like she was on the titanic oh god on the night of the 12th lieutenant massey was living it up downstairs and thalia was sulking upstairs wishing that she was home in her bungalow but she didn't want to interact with anyone and she was sitting by herself in the corner it was then that she was approached by another navy lieutenant ralph stogsdale Stogsdale was known to everyone as Moose. He stood at 6'5", with broad shoulders, and weighed about 225. Now, we're talking about the late 1920s, so this is a big guy. He's a moose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was considerably bigger than the small Thalia. And as per witnesses, Moose approached Thalia and said something regarding the fact that she should not be alone and that he wanted to keep her company if her husband would not. Thalia responded by slapping Moose in the face several times for the implication of what he was saying. As everyone stared on, she was screaming to them that this man was no gentleman. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a very 1920s it thing is. to do. I, I love it, though. Yeah. Thalia, knowing that her husband would not leave the party, left the inn without talking to him on foot and, angry as hell, booked it out of there. It was 12 a.m. An hour later... A disheveled Thalia is found stumbling along an unlit portion of Ala Mohana Road by several people. The car that stopped to see if she was okay was driven by a man named Eustace Bellinger. In the car was his wife and three neighbors. When they slowed down, the woman timidly approached the car. He asked if she was okay. Her only response was, Are you white people? When they said yes, Thalia responded, thank God, and got into the packed car. Now, this is kind of the first misconception of the case that's going to occur because it would make it seem like that's kind of a racist statement. You know what I mean? Like, are you white? Right. Then I'll trust you. Thalia to come under a little bit of attack for this statement, but it comes out later that she has terrible eyesight and during the attack, her glasses were knocked off. So she can't see, she's blind as a bat without her glasses. So right. she can't see who's in the car, so that prompted the statement. Right. However, still the underlyings of that statement would be racist. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean so, still, because a person is a person. Yes, so. but this case gets so complicated, so just yeah. let that stew back there. Gotcha. So those in the car will testify that Thalia had bruises all over her face, a swollen eye, and lip. She told them that she was forced into a car and beaten up by five or six dark-skinned Hawaiians. They had asked her if anything else had happened to her, obviously meaning had she been raped. But she told them no. She also said to them that it was so dark that she could not see the men or the license plate of their car that the only way she would ever be able to identify the men was through their voices. The people that rescued her said that they wanted to take her to the police station, but she said that she didn't want to do that. She just wanted to be taken home. At around 12.30 a.m., Tommy Massey is going to call home. He just realized that his wife was no longer at the inn, and he assumed that she had gone home. From the inn's phone upstairs, he called home to see if she had gotten home okay. When Thalia picked up the other end, the first thing that she said to her husband was, Tommy, something terrible has happened. Please come home at once. 
He left and returned home right away. When he got there, he could see that something terrible did happen, and that his wife's injuries were obvious and horrific. During the court trial, Massey described what happened when he returned home. He said that when he walked through the door, he found his wife collapsed and weeping hysterically on the floor. She told her husband that she had been beaten and then raped by five Hawaiian men that had dragged her into a car. They had taken her to Ala Moana Road. Massey wanted to immediately call the police, but his wife wouldn't let him. Over several hours, Massey calmed his wife down, and he then placed the call into police, without her knowing. I believe that for several reasons, Thalia didn't want the police to be called. I mean, the, the whole attack is going to be called into question, but it is clear in the beginning that she doesn't want the police to be involved at all. It's kind of like she wanted it to be taken care of in-house. Right, which would indicate to me that either, well, two things, either it didn't happen like she says it did, or that she didn't want She's her image to be tainted. tainted. Especially because of her family and her social status right. and the way that she's projected herself on this island thus far. Mm-hmm. She kind of, it would ruin her whole, her whole image. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of factors that come into play. I don't think until we lay out the whole picture can we kind of analyze any motives that took place. Because it gets insane. After Massey placed the call, several officers arrived to interview Thalia. She told the officers that she was beginning the walk home on John Enya Road when she was kidnapped by the five men. She said they were a bunch of boys that appeared to be Hawaiians in an old model Ford or Dodge touring car. She said the top of the car was flapping because it was torn. She said the car just stopped. They all jumped out and started hitting her. Then they threw her into the car. Once they were all in the car, they began driving. And as the car was moving, they continued the attack and took turns punching her. They were driving down Ala Moana Road and then decided to stop. They then drove a little ways off the road and pulled her out of the car. It was then that they took turns raping her as the beatings continued. She said that it was too dark and that she could not see them or the license plate but she could tell by their voices and the way they spoke that they were Hawaiians. She did not remember them using any names when the attack was taking place, but she did remember that one of the men was referred to as Bull. The officers paid a lot of attention to the license plate number. They told her that all local plates had five numbers, and that even if she could remember one or two, that would help them narrow down the search. She clearly told them, however, that she could not remember any license plate numbers. But the one thing Thalia did not tell the officers, and I have no idea why, was, and maybe just because the shock of things, but she didn't tell them that her glasses had been knocked off during the attack, and that even with the light of the full moon, there was no way that she would be able to see anything that she was legally blind without her glasses. No amount of illumination would allow her to see the men's faces or the license plate number. Without her glasses. Right. (laughs) The officers that went to the Massey house the night of the attack to interview and take the statement from Mrs. and Mr. Massey described her as being badly beaten up. She had blood dripping from her lips and her nose, bruises on her face and arms, as that was all that was visible to them. They couldn't attest to anything else. 
However, one officer said that as he was leaving, now this comes out months later, conveniently, that she told him that night that maybe she remembers seeing a license plate with two fives in it. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That comes out a little bit later that the officer said she recalled that, but it was in no paperwork. Okay, so we are going to take a break and talk to you about our first sponsor today, FabFitFun. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box for women to discover new products for a life well-lived. FabFitFun delivers a box of full-size fashion, beauty, home, fitness, and wellness products to you four times a year for just $49.99 a box. There is also editor's boxes available for purchase in between seasonal boxes with newly discovered items and favorites from past boxes. Honestly, this is the best box subscription I have ever received. Just one of the full-size products would be the cost of the entire box. With FabFitFun, there are no samples of anything. You get the whole deal. Like, sometimes you just get little samples, but they give the whole product every time. Yeah, I hate those samples. I know. Because if you love it, it's like, oh, it's only gone. It's gone after, like, three uses. But this, exactly. you get the full thing out of it. So we want to talk to you about the Summer Editor's Box, the one that we just got. Of course, every box comes with a train case that can hold all of my makeup and all of my brushes. And this is something that's so convenient for summer, especially because we go on a lot of, like, you know, like weekend trips. Oh, yeah. A Hava Mineral Hand Cream and a body wash infused buffer. But also in that box was the Foreo Luna Fofo. I know it was a crazy name, but honestly, that is the best thing that we've ever received. It's a face exfoliator brush and silicone cleansing device that you can use with your face wash while you're washing your face or in the shower. And honestly, it's the best thing that I've ever used on my face. And now John's taking it over. Confession. I steal it from time to time. Time every day. Every day. Okay, fine. <laughs> Confession. Every day. But your face looks beautiful. Illuminated. I love it. Lovely. I love it. I look bright. <laughs> I shine. And I love it. <laughs> it really, it's an amazing product. But that's just one example of you getting a full product in this box. And just that alone would cost more than the entire box would. And it's an amazing product that I love and that John loves. I do like so it. So the whole family can really get uses out of some of this stuff. So we want to share this deal with you. Sign up for FabFitFun today to get your summer editor's box. Use our code TCC to get $10 off your first box. Go to fabfitfun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well lived. Use promo code TCC to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 for only $39.99. Go to fabfitfun.com and use our code TCC to get $10 off your first FabFitFun box. Okay, let's get back to the case. After the interviews were finished, Tommy Massey took his wife to the hospital so she could receive a physical examination. By this time, it was 2.35 a.m., and the doctor who examined her, Dr. David Liu, was told the same story that Thalia had told the police. The doctor treated her cuts and could not confirm or rule out the fact that a rape had occurred. I don't know. I feel like I need to interject there because I just feel like with a, a gang rape, of five or six men that evidence of rape would be obvious but i i don't know i mean i i would i would be so sure i mean okay yes there would definitely be evidence of that i think 
but were there any sort of like um I guess like rape kits back in the 30s probably not No, they not. didn't do a rape kit. So there's probably So uh, but there but, were the bruising on her body did consist with a rape taking place. Right. But the like gynecological exam that took place gave no evidence that a rape took place. So it's it's very complicated. Yeah. As the police began to investigate the attack and rape of Thalia Massey, they found several witnesses that saw Thalia walking home that night from the inn. They had received the story from the patrons at the inn as to why and how Thalia left the bar, and slowly they began to find witnesses who saw her in the minutes after she was last seen inside. But these witnesses did not confirm Thalia's recollection of events. They actually cast doubt on them. One of those witnesses, who was Alice Maramaka, who worked at a nearby Waikiki Park, she had seen the woman walk by, who fit the description of Thalia Massey. The woman walked a few feet in front of her. She said she remembered it so well because it was unusual to see a white woman dressed so fancy, like I said, she was wearing a green ball gown lined in fur, to be in that neighborhood at that time of night. Alice also witnessed a white man dressed in a dark suit walking just a few feet behind the woman. This was around 12.10 a.m. Okay, so 10 minutes after she left the, the bar. Two more witnesses, a married couple, they said they saw the same man and woman walk past their car around the same time. Also, when questioned, Eustace Bellinger and his passengers said that Thalia's evening gown had not been ripped in any way. That's suspicious. Yeah. Because if you're being, unfortunately, if you're being dragged, beaten, and and raped raped. by multiple people. Your dress would, I, I would assume, be at least disheveled. Yes. Now we are going to backtrack here for a moment. We know that Tommy Massey had called home around 12.30, 12.35, and after hearing that something had happened to his wife, he was rushing home. Well, around the same time, at about 12.40, there was a traffic incident that occurred. Two vehicles were passing through an intersection and almost collided. In one car was a married couple, a native Hawaiian woman and her white husband. In the other car was a group of what she described as Hawaiian teenagers. The accident would have been deadly if the cars would have collided, but they didn't, and now both cars are stopped. The teenagers are yelling at the woman in the car, shouting out racist remarks about them being a mixed-race couple, and that they were going to give her white husband what he deserved. Then they began screaming at the man to get off the island. The wife, her name was Agnes Peoples, she's going to get out of the car at the same time as one of the teenagers got out of the car. The boy who got out of the car, his name was Joseph Kahahawai. He was known as a a boxer on the island. She shoved Joseph. I'm going to call him Joseph. We will say Kahahawai, but I think it's easier to to say Joe. Can we agree? I agree. Okay. (laughs) She shoved Joe, and he stumbled backwards. And at this point, Agnes's husband was getting out of the car, And she turned to look back at her husband. At this point, as she's turning away, Joe is going to punch her in the ear. So hard that she loses her balance. So as she's recovering her balance, she grabs Joe by the throat and hits him in the face. Agnes's husband and the other teenagers got involved and broke up the fight. The teenage boys then quickly drove away. However, as they were driving away, Agnes Peoples saw their license plate 
and wrote it down in a notebook that she kept in her purse. The license plate was 58895. When the couple got home, they called the police, who then broadcasted the license plate out to all officers on patrol. The report of the incident was even being broadcasted over the police radio in the hospital, the same hospital in which Thalia Massey was being examined. Okay. So after the physical examination was done, the officers that were with the Masseys were instructed to ask the couple if they would go down to the police station so Thalia could give the information to John McIntosh, who was the chief inspector of the island. When Thalia and Tommy Massey arrived at the station, it seemed like Thalia's memory greatly improved. She told McIntosh that she remembered that she was raped six or seven times. He also asked if she could in any way remember the license plate number that was on the car. She said that she couldn't be quite sure, but she thought that as the car was driving away, she saw the numbers read 58805. This was only one digit off from the number that was relayed over the broadcast about the people's incident. She also said that in addition to hearing the name Bull, she heard a common name like Joe. Joseph Kahahawai's name was being read over the broadcast as well. <laughs> I, I, I'm starting to piece things together. It, things are starting to become clear. Yes. And it's, it's kind of funny. I'm proud of you. I don't even want to... I'm sure everyone that's hearing this with me it's right now is the also the same. Are. Exactly. Uh, it's ridiculous. I can't even... I'm laughing because I can't even like... Oh, I know. It's, it's sad because, I mean, someone did get beat up. I'm just saying, though. I mean... Something I'm, happened. Something happened, but I'm just... As you're telling this, it's... It's, it's, it's very evident that... It gets worse. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, to be honest, though, to police, this seems like a no-brainer. There was an attack on a white woman by several young Hawaiian men, and then minutes later, there was another report of a group of Hawaiian men who were yelling racial slurs at a couple, and one of the men punched a woman. So it seems like there's a pattern here. Then that maybe it would make sense, because the crimes technically seem related, that it has to be these men, right? No, I mean, these men are out of control. If they did do that to her, then, I mean, and right. also, yeah, right. Got into a, uh, almost into an accident, punched a woman mm-hmm. in the face, and then Racially fled. motivated right. crime against a woman. They connect. You're seeing it. Right. Which, just to take a second, that woman is badass. Agnes? Yeah, Agnes is yeah. badass. I mean, She's, she yeah. she punched back. That's awesome. She pushed him, and then she, like, grabbed him by the throat and, like, was hitting him. She, like, Ronda rousey him. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> So who were these teenage boys that were in the car that was involved in the people's incident? It turns out that the boys were not teenagers at all. The five boys were Joseph Kahahawai and Ben Ahakuelo, who were both of Hawaiian descent, Horace Ida and David Takei, who were of Japanese descent, and Henry Chang, who was Hawaiian Chinese. Joseph was a 20-year-old who grew up in an area of Honolulu called Iwale, which is a working-class red-light district neighborhood. Honestly, if I'm pronouncing these things wrong, guys, I'm really sorry, but I'm trying my best. I mean, it's not like you're proficient in, you know... I am really trying. I mean, you've never even been to Hawaii. No, unfortunately, I haven't. I haven't either, and I I would love to go. But anyway. So he was the leader of a group of boys that were called the, the School Street Gang. I mean, they weren't involved in anything violent or illegal, but they kind of just took care and looked out for each other in this bad neighborhood. While in high school, Joe was on the football team, 
something that he was really proud of. However, he never finished high school. He was a well-known boxer on the island, but he wasn't as big as the other boy, Ben, who was also 20 years old and played high school football. But he was really involved in the boxing kind of circuit that was going on on the island, and he was actually really talented. He had earned a place representing Hawaii in the 1931 Amateur Boxing Championship Tournament that was held right here in New York in Madison Square Garden. Wow. It's pretty crazy, right? That is, yeah. Horace Ida was 24 years old, and he had returned to Hawaii recently, as he had previously been in California. He was coming back to help his mother and sister find work. It was actually Horace's sister's car that the boys were driving that night. Henry Chang, who was 22 years old, he helped his family with their farm on the island when he wasn't working as a salmon fisher in Alaska. It's pretty crazy, though. Like, you go back and forth from Alaska to Hawaii. I feel like those are two complete extremes. (laughs) Yeah. David Takei was 21 years old, and he lived near all the other suspects in that red light district that we discussed before. And this lower income area was definitely showing the the lower strata of Hawaiian society. They were people that were struggling, working class. They were in a different world than Thalia Massey. Oh, definitely. Night and day. And as to be expected in a lower income area, especially during the Depression, crime was running rampant. And these boys did all have a record. However, the record went beyond that of small time crimes. Both Ben and Henry had been tried and convicted of the gang rape of a teenage girl. See, with this case, there seems to be so much on the surface, but it's just like the tip of the iceberg. Because although looking at this as a police officer, you would say a woman was gang raped. Like, the coincidences and the events, the paths crossing is just so unbelievable in this case. And there's priors. And there's, yeah, but like, so let's take this gang rape, for instance, okay? According to the boys, on the evening of March 22nd, 1929, they were, as well as two other boys, at a party with a woman named Rose Younge. All of the boys had consensual sex with Younge. However, word got around that the girl had had sex with these boys, and when she was confronted by her mother about the incident... She told her that the boys had raped her. Once the newspapers got a hold of the story, they went wild. The newspapers described a vicious attack of a teenage girl by a dozen animals. The public was outraged and demanded stricter laws be passed against sex offenders. One of the laws proposed that all convicted sex offenders should receive public whippings. During the trial, Younge admitted that there was not a rape. The sex that she had was consensual but she was nervous when her mother asked what happened. She was ashamed. After the confession, the jury really had no basis for a conviction, but to send a message that such immoral behavior by Honolulu's youth would not be tolerated. So they delivered a guilty verdict. And the guilty verdict was for assault with intent to ravish, but recommended leniency for the boys. The sentence for this offense ranged from four months to 15 years. The judge sentenced them to a minimum of four months. Now, this is just complicated because you don't know. In cases like this, in a he said, she said, 
it's hard to decipher what, what truly happened. Because you could say that maybe she made up the fact that there was a sexual assault because she was ashamed. But then you can also say that maybe she was coerced on the stand to admit that it was consensual. Right. And so you d- we don't know what happened with this case. No, we don't know. And, and you know what? We didn't know back in 1929, and we still deal with those things now present. No, because there's never so going to be an answer. Th- it really is something that doesn't go away. It's when it, when it involves you know rape. It's it's very complicated because you just don't know what's truth and what's just made up. Right. And it's it puts you in a really bad spot to be in when if you're you know either the jury or the judge or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, it's it's hard. It makes it very complicated because we don't know. Do these two boys that were in the car that night, did they do this? Do they have a past of this? I mean, I will say that the behavior of doing that to a girl, whether consensual or not, is kind of a bizarre thing to do. Oh, yeah. It so, is. Yeah. I mean, that's where I think I'm going to like, because we don't know if it was rape or not. But I will say that, that it was in their moral compass to do that that night to a girl who was definitely under the influence. It's also possible that it was consensual with one. And maybe not and, the And others. not the others. The boys um, definitely, I don't know, because then there's the argument of can you consent when you're under the influence? It gets very complicated. It does. Um, but one thing this case this prior conviction of the gang rape does bring to light is how lenient Hawaii's um, criminal justice system was. So both men were sentenced to four months, right? Mm -hmm. They only served two weeks. Do you want to know why? Good behavior? No, Ben had to go to the boxing tournament in New York. Okay. I was going to say either good behavior or there was too many people in the prison? No. Okay. But that goes to show you that sex crimes on the Hawaiian Islands were definitely not taken seriously. And there's going to be something that happens later that's going to further bring this to light. So given that the People's Incident and the Massey Incident occurred on the same night, both were racially motivated, involving crimes against women, and had the same amount of men and the same license plate, all boys were to be arrested for the rape and beating of Thalia Massey. The first man who was arrested, caught, was Horace Ida. Horace, at the time of his arrest, was brought into the police station, as the Masseys were still at the police station giving their statement. He is brought in front of Thalia, and she identifies him as one of the men that attacked her. Even though she gave a statement that she could not see their faces previously. Later the next day, the rest of the boys were arrested. They were brought first to the Massey house before they were processed by police. At her home, Thalia Massey identified all of the boys except for David Takei. When the car showed up, she said that she could not identify that as the one that she had seen that night. So she identified all of the boys except for David Takei, but not the car. However, months later, during the subsequent trial that's going to take place, she changes her statement and says that she did recognize the car. I find it ridiculous because here you are, you can't recognize the car, but yet you know that there's two fives in the license plate. So I just, that (laughs) that drives me crazy. It is also important to say that the 
car that the boys were driving in did not have um, like a broken roof where it was flapping. Right. As she explained. She also is going to state that she was able to identify Ben specifically because of a gold tooth filling that she had. That's crazy specific, I think, for someone who says that they're having eyesight problems. Well, that's, that's they're legally blind without their glasses, yeah. Right. Unless that during, if you think about it, a sexual attack, a man's face is going to be close to you. Maybe that is what, what she saw. So I'm just playing devil's advocate here uh, and everything. The newspapers also got a hold of the story, and as instructed, they did not print the names of the victims or the accused, but they described Thalia as a woman of refinement and culture, and the accused as fiends. Which makes sense, because if you think about the crime, that's your automatic thought. It's insane. If, if this truly happened to this woman, this is horrific. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not normal. These, that's not a normal thing. No. No way. It also appears that the Roosevelt family had reached out to members of the press and pulled a few strings to keep the identity of Thalia private, as this is what they called a family matter now. Thalia's father was very close with his cousin, Theodore Roosevelt. Like we said, he fought with him. He was a rough rider in the Spanish-American War. And she did have the fortune, eventually, of the Alexander Graham Bell estate. So she had money and And a powerful family. And influence, yeah. Yeah. So Grace, who was her mother, wanted to go to Hawaii to comfort her daughter. However, her father refused to go. There's a lot of questions that are being brought up here. And obviously the police believed that they had the right guys. Because given all the information they had, how could they not have the right men? However, this happens where suspects are so ingrained in the minds of law enforcement that they have tunnel vision. Investigations stop and cases are built. However, how is Thalia identifying men when she said she couldn't see? And we know physically she couldn't see. But then at the end of the day, she was attacked. How had these physical injuries taken place all over her body? She had some pretty rough injuries. So right now I'm going to go over what what she had. Thalia had a broken jaw with considerable displacement, and she had to have surgery to repair a tooth that was damaged. She was struck so hard in the face that her teeth shattered below her gums. Wow. Yeah. Other injuries included six-inch-long bruising on her legs, Contusion to her left elbow, extensive bruising to her from her ankles to her knees, right? And that's kind of con- conducive with a rape right. taking place. Um, from days after the attack, she went back for additional examination as bruising sometimes takes a little bit longer to show up. Um, it was re- revealed during this exam that she had extensive bruising on her chest and inner thighs. Thalia also went through an additional exam a month later to determine if she was pregnant. The exam revealed that she was not pregnant, but she had still had extensive bruising all over her body. So how could she have been attacked like this, but there was no tears to her dress? That's a good question, right? Because something happened to this woman that night. I don't know if these boys did it, but something really bad happened to this woman. Oh, that's without question. Without question, something bad happened. But what exactly took place, Mm -hmm. that's the mystery. Right. Is it these five boys? 
is a coincidence that, you know, like multiple people saw them. There was multiple, you know, between her getting attacked, the whole car situation. Right. Like, is that just co- all coincidence? And has, like, I don't know. But what an insane coincidence, though. Like, if this truly is a coincidence, the fact that these boys are all in a car, racially motivated crime that took place, they're involved in the people's incident, and also the fact they have prior convictions of gang rape. True. That's kind of crazy True. coincidence. I completely understand, but you also have to take into account that there were, I believe, two eyewitnesses that said that they saw a man dressed in a suit that was walking behind her ten minutes after she left. Mm-hmm. Number one. Okay. Number number that two. Kind of shady. You know that guy Moose. Maybe he followed him her out. Right. Right. We he don't could, know. He could, and maybe she wouldn't want to tell on another naval reput- officer. Exactly. So we have to take that into account. I know I'm right. going into theory early. No, no, no. It's but good. We, need we have to, like, to get make it out sure there. that we understand that part. Is that it could be right. anything. Would she want to tell on Navy officers they did this? Exactly. Yeah. So we want to take a quick break and tell you about another awesome podcast. If you're a fan of this podcast, you probably love true crime. If so, let me tell you about a new podcast that I love. When you think of criminal, what do you picture? Do you picture a murderer? Some of the maniacs from our cases? A thief? Do you picture a woman? Probably not. That's why I'm hooked to this new podcast. Female Criminals. Every week, the host of Female Criminals take a psychological approach to analyzing the stories and motivations of the women behind some of the world's most dangerous crimes. Each episode analyzes the psychology of these criminals, looking into their minds to better understand their motives. The host dives deep into the lives of the infamous female criminals, providing listeners with each woman's backstory and details of her crime. You can check out episodes on The Cocaine Godmother and Eileen Warnos now. And with new episodes coming out every Wednesday, you can rest assured that you will always get your weekly dose of true crime. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for female criminals. Again, that's F-E-M-A-L-E-C-R-I-M-I-N-A-L-S. Or visit parcast.com slash criminals to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T, dot com slash criminals to listen now. Thanks, and let's get back to this case. So the trial of the five boys would take place in November of 1931, only months after the assault took place. That's kind of crazy. How can you build up a defense in only just a few months? The trial was known to the public as the Alamoana trials, as this is the street where everything supposedly took place. The judge that presided over the case was known to be favorable towards the whites on the island. He had stated in the past that the whites were naturally more dominant ones of the races, and his opinion is that they were the natural leaders of things. Good. Great. Good. Nice. (laughs) So this was made obvious by the fact that he dismissed every pretrial motion submitted by the defense. Even the motion that requested a list of just what each defend, like what crime each defendant was being accused of. He wouldn't even let that come out. 
That's crazy. That's insane. Like, how's that even possible? Like, you're showing prejudice before the trial even begins. Yeah. That's so bizarre. Yeah. The jury that heard the trial consisted of one white man, one Portuguese, two Japanese, two Chinese, and six mixed-race individuals that were of Caucasian and Hawaiian descent. So at least the jury wasn't, like, 12 angry white men. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, at least it was mixed up here. (laughs) During the trial, the first witness to be called was Thalia Massey. And of course, there were obvious discrepancies in her story compared to what she told witnesses, what she told police that day, what she told police weeks later, and what she was saying now. It seemed like every story she was telling was different. During the cross-examination of Thalia Massey, the defense lawyers needed to be careful. They needed to watch the way they were handling this victim. The courtroom was packed with media, and the last thing they wanted to do was make it look like they were re-victimizing the woman. However, they did question her extensively about the night of the attack. It seemed like her story was constantly changing and becoming more confusing. By the end of her testimony, it was clear to everyone that there was something suspicious about what truly went on that night. During the cross-examination, she also said that she was in shock after the attack and does not remember what she said to police exactly as her husband was the one who was doing most of the talking to police. So after Thalia's testimony, the judge, jury, and countless members of the media would hear from 63 other witnesses. After Thalia, I mean, we're only going to talk about the most important witnesses and the highlights of the trial. I'm not going to go through 63 witnesses. That would be crazy town. But after Thalia would be the first responding officers that would relay the fact that Thalia said she did not know the license plate of the attackers and she would only ever be able to identify the attackers by their voice because she had not seen them. Another officer testified that Thalia and her husband heard the information from the people's incident over the police radio. It is also during this time that another woman, that another officer from the house said that she had at the house admitted that maybe there were two fives in the license plate. However, under cross-examination, he admitted that there was no documentation of this anywhere. And in fact, this was the first time that he was admitting that Thalia ever said anything about it. So it's kind of shaky, the fact that he's saying that she said at the house that night there was two fives. Right, but... The cross-examination was pretty good in, like, saying, like, that's yeah, kind of weird. Knock, it's knocking all the bullshit yeah. out. Yeah. But that would not be the only testimony that showed the police in a bad light. Because it's, it's not honest. Some of the most damning information against police, showing their incompetence and even misconduct, involved the alleged tire tracks at the crime scene where Thalia claimed she was raped. The police concluded that the tire tracks found in the mud in this area, where she said the rape took place, matched the tires on the car that Ida drove that night. An officer who went to the crime scene to photograph the tire tracks testified that the area had been driven over so much that it was not worth photographing. But the most damning testimony came when the defense got the witness to admit for the first time that Chief Detective McIntosh, remember him, had gotten a mechanic to start the car Ida had driven without a key because the key was still in possession of the Ida family. 
and McIntosh had driven Ida's car without his knowledge to the scene of the crime and through the mud before investigators arrived to look for tire tracks and other evidence. Are you serious? Yeah. No, you can't make it up. No, I mean that's that's first of all <laughs> you you're, can't do that. You can't do that. You're like trying to make evidence what? there that's not. Okay. That's tampering. We've heard some crazy stuff like doing all oh, these yes, trials, but this is that's insanity. You know they're going to look for tire tracks, so let me drive the car to the scene. Like that's obvious evidence planting. Yeah, it's it's tampering. You can't do that. Okay. So it's very serious activity had not been reported to the prosecutor or the city attorney's office. And the defense put McIntosh on the stand, and he had to admit that this was true. Any jury would see that this is either a deliberate attempt to frame the defendants, or at best, gross incompetence that would contaminate the crime scene and force the police and the prosecution to drop allegations that tire tracks were found at the scene at all. Right? Agreed, yeah. Yeah. It was during the testimony of Thalia's doctor, Dr. Porter, that it was revealed to the jury that she was legally blind without her glasses, and that while she was identifying the defendants so quickly and the car, she was also under the influence, heavy influence, of opiates for the jaw injury she sustained. When the defense asked Dr. Porter if he believed Thalia knew what she was doing, he answered, For the first four or five days, I really don't believe she knew exactly what she was doing. Due to the opioids. Yeah. Okay, possibly. She was so heavily medicated because, I mean, think about, so your jaw is basically kind of disconnected and your teeth have been shattered below your gum because you were hit so hard. You're going to be in a little bit of pain. I agree, but take it from me. I've had major back surgery. I've I was on lots of, you know, pain medicine as well, and I never was loopy enough where I thought that I either saw things or that I couldn't remember something. I would say the only thing that affected me was when I came right out of surgery when I was on morphine. I couldn't remember right. I couldn't remember a small uh, chunk of time. Chunk of time. But other than that, well, we also don't know what she was prescribed. True. So. But I'm just saying. I, I, I was on... She would be able to yeah. know, hey, I remember this or not, or... Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. A little iffy. So during the establishment of the timeline, it was revealed that it would have been physically impossible for the boys to have attacked Thalia and then be at the people's incident. This is because Thalia was seen at 1210 walking by witnesses, and the people's incident occurred at 1235. That means the men would have had 12 minutes to commit the attacks, the kidnapping, the beating, the six incidents of rape, drive away, have the confrontation with the people's incident. Well, guess what? What? In my opinion, right there proves it, that they didn't do it. But that's based on the fact that, she, that the witnesses saw her at 1210. But let's just, I'm just saying for argument's sake, let's say that is the case. Well, hold on, I have something to tell you. Okay. The closing arguments then began, but they were interrupted by an unusual event. At one point near the end of the trial, as the defense attorneys were giving their closing statements, Detective Jardin, who was one of the main detectives in the case, left the courtroom to have a cigarette in the corridor. He was approached by a friend. He startled him by telling him 
that the defense witnesses who testified that they saw Thalia Massey in a green dress with a man following her were mistaken. He told Jardin that the woman and man that they saw walking were actually a couple named Mr. and Mrs. George McClellan. The tipster told Jardin how to get in contact with the couple. Jardin relayed the information to the city attorney, Gilliand, and this development was immediately communicated to the judge, who called a recess to the trial. Because if that wasn't her that they saw, it could have been them, because that eliminates the timeline issue. See what I'm saying? Ah, okay. Yeah, wow. So, the judge and the attorney on both sides met in chambers, and Jardin repeated the new information. He declined to identify the informant who had given the tip in confidence. Jardin gave a deposition, and a police officer was sent with a subpoena to find the McClellans. The judge then surprised the court by adjourning for the day. So, like, they were supposed to be giving their closing arguments. All of a sudden, courts adjourned. Something took place. It was very dramatic. When court resumed on Wednesday, December 2nd, instead of beginning his closing argument, the prosecutor called George McClellan to the stand. Many spectators knew McClellan through his work running sporting events like boxing and football games. McClellan related that while his wife was currently in the hospital, on the night of September 12th, they had gone dancing at the Waikiki Park and afterwards walked down John Enya Road. His wife was wearing a long green evening dress. Then the court recessed and the attorney and jury went into were brought to the hospital where Mrs. McClellan was was a patient to get her testimony. Isn't this crazy? It is. At the hospital, a miniature courtroom was all set up with chairs, and Mrs. McClellan was testifying from her hospital bed. She corroborated her husband's testimony. The defense attorney then decided not to cross-examine the woman. But before they left, the couple that was in the car that saw the McClellans and the woman that was working in the park, remember those two? They were called in briefly to take a look at Mrs. McClellan. When the court reconvened back at the building, like back in the normal courtroom, the man was put back on the stand that saw the woman in the green dress. Like, these are the three witnesses that saw the woman in the green dress, man in the dark suit. Right. So they were called back. They said, now that you've seen Mr. and Mrs. McClellan, was that the couple that you saw that night? Could that not have been Thalia Massey? He said that, yes, that was Mrs. McClellan that he saw with her husband. So those three eyewitnesses, done. Not reliable anymore. It was a different couple. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of takes a lot of doubt away and kind of backs up Thalia's story here. Well, see, that's the thing about this case that I'm, I'm, I'm liking so far is that, like, okay... I guess I'm being very, like, okay, I think she's lying. <laughs> That's my argument. But what we can't dismiss is that she definitely got brutalized. Like, she got beat up pretty bad. So yeah, like it's who not, did it? It's not that it didn't happen. It's just... Who did it? Who did it? After that debacle came to a close, the jury was given the task of rendering a verdict. They were under tremendous pressure. The jury was charged with weighing the veracity of a female victim who was young, white, socially prominent, and married to a United States Navy officer against that of the defendants who were poor, unemployed, dark-skinned, and of dubious social standing. 
two of the five men had previous criminal convictions for assault with intent to ravish, while a third had been convicted of assault and battery. So it's not looking good. No, I mean, on paper, it doesn't at all. I mean, they have prior convictions. They are poor. They come from a bad area of town. It's, yeah. it's not good. I know. Now, if this couldn't get more complicated, two jurors got into a physical fight during the deliberation of the trial. The defense wanted to call a mistrial, but through further investigation, it was determined that the two jurors got into a fight because of a previous incident. Apparently, the two knew each other. Oh, okay. It's actually pretty funny. <laughs> they were asked if they could move forward, and they said that they could. So they did. But after three days, they still could not reach a verdict. Therefore, the, du- therefore the judge gave them an Allen charge, which is a supplemental jury instruction given by the court to encourage a deadlocked jury after a prolonged deliberations to reach a verdict. But on the fourth day... After having taken 100 ballots in total, the jury still was unable to reach a verdict. The judge declared a mistrial on December 6, 1931. It was the longest jury deliberation in Hawaii's history. During a press conference, jurors revealed that the biggest spread in the ballots was 7 for conviction and 5 for acquittal. Several months after the trial, the judge gave an interview with the U.S. Justice Department official in which he admitted that he kept the jury deliberating because he wanted a guilty verdict. Of course he did. Of course. I mean, it seems so far they're all shady anyway. Right. The mistrial outraged Navy personnel and the white citizens in Hawaii, many government officials throughout the United States. The mistrial outraged Navy personnel, white citizens in Hawaii, and many government officials throughout the United States. After all, we are talking about the Roosevelts here. Don't forget. That's true. One of those who led the crusade of this injustice was a known racist congressman who had made his money through the owning of various sugar plantations and saying on his election day, the white race was made to rule and the colored races were made to be ruled. Also was Admiral Yates Sterling. He was a commander of the 14th Naval District, which includes the Hawaiian Islands. Sterling actually predicted the Japanese attack of Pearl Harbor, but no one listened to him, and he actually retired a few months before the attack of 1941. But let's not let that distract us from the fact that he was a racist idiot. (laughs) True. (laughs) Well, he wasn't as bad as the congressman, but... He said that the first inclination of the Navy was to string these men up and hang them in trees. Sterling was under tremendous pressure because it came out that it now was not safe for naval men to bring their wives and families to Hawaii. And transfer papers began to fly. Especially there was like an incident of, there was a note that kept being dropped in like the mess hall at the naval base saying that like there was a Waikiki gang that wanted to rape all the the white women in Hawaii but this later was found out to be a hoax that was written by another naval man trying to just like stir up some craziness cool dude yeah <laughs> this led the navy putting out a statement that they would not allow their women to be violated in this way and that they would be taking these matters into their own hands obviously meaning like lynchings The mainland covered the case with a racist intensity that was unmatched. 
An article in the New York Times, which was entitled Lust in Paradise, read as follows. Very disappointed in you, New York Times. Honolulu, a parasitic melting pot of East and West, was tense with trouble last week. Yellow man's lust for white women had broken bounds. Short, sharp disorders brought the tramp of lust through the streets. A tremor of apprehension ran through Hawaii's motley population. Coolies from China, great Russians from Siberia, little Chinese crowded off their homeland, Portuguese, Puerto Ricans, Koreans, Filipinos, sugar and pineapple workers all. Good. It's great, right? It's 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 I think <laughs> that it's it's interesting. I just think that in the 1920s and 30s we saw crazy stereotyping that's going to affect racism and judgments from that point on. So it seemed that all this media attention and aggressiveness was directed towards the five men who the country seemingly thought had gotten away with it. However, in reality, this simply was not true. Despite the uproar throughout the mainland USA, the crime rate in Hawaii was remarkably low. Even more importantly, sexual assaults of white women by Native Hawaiians and Asian men wasn't even a statistic. But when it came to Honolulu and those who knew what had truly happened at the trial and knew who the parties were beforehand, there was a deep division. Some people thought that maybe Thalia was not telling the whole truth, and that's when rumors began to circulate. So apparently some of the wives from the naval bases would be friends with, in quotes, the beach boys, in quotes, of Waikiki. So like sometimes the naval wives would have affairs with the native Hawaiian men, like the clean cut beach boys. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. Okay, good. Very healthy environment. The rumor was that Thalia had done this and that one of her beach boys was one of the five men who were accused. But most likely this was not true because the five boys that were accused were not the beach boy type. See, they were from the bad part of town. The beach boys weren't from the bad part of town. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. But it certainly made for a good conversation and people liked repeating it. Another rumor was that maybe Tommy had come home and found Thalia in a compromising position with another sailor, one whom she flirted with a lot, by the name of Jerry Branson. And when he discovered this, Massey threw Branson out and attacked his wife in anger. But this rumor can't be true either, because she was picked up by Eustace Bollinger on the road. Right. So, like, so it does, that like doesn't these make any rumors, sense. It's just... They're rumors. Meant to hurt her. Right. Because of the rumors, Thalia became very withdrawn and did not want to leave her house. Her doctor, Dr. Porter told Tommy Massey that he should get his wife out of Hawaii, that no good was going to come out of them staying here. Tommy said that they would not be talked off the island. Now, because they were not charged with a capital crime, all of the defendants were released on bail on December 1st until a retrial was to begin. However, the retrial could only begin if new evidence was brought to light. Not even two weeks into their release... As he was coming out of a bar in Honolulu, Horace Ida was kidnapped by a group of white men. They held him at gunpoint and kidnapped him. They drove him to the well-known Polly Cliff. Once there, the men stripped him and beat him. 
They hit him in the face with their belt buckles until he was unrecognizable, all the while trying to extract a confession from him about what happened to Thalia Massey. He never confessed. Horace Ida was beaten until he passed out, and that's where the men left him. Horace Ida was able to crawl and walk to the nearest police station. He told officers he was unable to identify the men who did this to him, but he did remember that they were white, and from the way they were talking, it seemed like they were naval officers. The police were under mounting stress now, and in the early 1930s, law enforcement in Hawaii was not ready for a spotlight to be shown their way. Amid this controversy was a New Year's Eve incident, which highlighted the fact that even if criminals landed themselves in prison, which seemed to be pretty hard to do in Hawaii, things weren't so difficult for them. So one of the incidents that basically it was kind of like a work program. So prisoners were able to work, but if they ever, I don't know, didn't show up for dinner time, like to come back after working, they would just lock them out of the prison for the night. So, so what does so that why, even do? Right. So then why would you go back? So like they would go out for long weekends. Nothing would happen. They were always in and out of the jail. There was no uniforms. There was no... They were able to drink with the guards. And in one incident, that New Year's, so like the five boys were released December 2nd. So that month, there was a party on New Year's Eve at the prison. And the guards were drinking with the prisoners. Two prisoners escaped, took the guards' car, and just were out joyriding for three days They eventually happened upon a house where a woman was staying by herself. They tied her up, they raped her, and they robbed the whole house. So, like, that that incident happened on top of this Massey case going down. So it was just getting bigger and bigger. Right, so now the spotlight's on them, and then that took place. So the whole country's like, what the hell's going on in Hawaii? And it's scary. Yeah. During this time, Grace Fortescue... Thalia's mother, Tommy Massey, and his commanding officer were going out of their way appealing to everyone legally and politically so that they could get these men men back behind bars. But they were told over and over again that they could not hold the men. The rumors about Thalia and Tommy were greatly distressing Tommy and his mother-in-law. They eventually planned a way to stop the rumors and help ensure that the Ala Moana defendants would be convicted and that they would be retried. So an enlisted sailor named Albert Jones, who had been assigned to guard the Massey home while Tommy was away, informed Tommy that Horace Ida, remember when he was kidnapped and beaten, that he actually confessed when he was kidnapped and beaten. But in fact, that's not true. He never did. So Tommy is going to go to a private attorney. His name's Eugene Bibby. And ridiculous, I know, ridiculous last name. So he tells his private attorney, well, Horace Ida confessed. So now does this mean that I can get these men convicted? And what the private attorney is going to say to him is that because the confession was not legally obtained, that that would never hold up in court. So, like, that's not how it works. So Tommy would later testify, there's going to be another trial, 
that he did ask the private attorney if they could use as evidence a written confession from one of the defendants. And the attorney did tell him that yes, they could use a written profession, uh, a written confession, as long as it provided no, f- no force was used and no marks were shown on the one who gave it. So, under no duress did he write this letter. Right. So Tommy and Grace Fortescue began to plan how they would obtain a confession. Tommy had heard a rumor that Joseph Kahahawe was close to cracking under pressure. So they decided that they would target him, but they had to get him alone so that they could scare him into confessing. Grace had heard that the defendants, as a condition of their release, had to report daily, but at separate times, to a probation officer at the territorial building. Grace went to the building and learned that Kahahawe was to report at 8 a.m. each morning. That's a crazy condition to have to report each day. Yeah, that is actually. <laughs> Grace cut out a picture of Joe, Kahawe, but we're saying Joe now, published in the Star Bulletin and also learned his address from the newspaper. The newspaper printed his address. Could you, imma- could you imagine that happening today? It wouldn't. <laughs> she drove to the poor neighborhood where Joe lived, but decided that there would be no way that they would be able to kidnap him from that area. Someone would definitely see it. Some sources imply that Joe may have been selected because he was the darkest colored of all the defendants, so that that's why he was targeted the most. Uh, We don't know. It's not clear why they thought that Joe was going to crack. There's really nothing that, no evidence that we have that said that he was under pressure. Maybe it's just a feeling that they got. I don't know. But now they're going to stop at nothing to try and get this confession from Joe. They want it. They want it. They want it. (laughs) Okay, so now we're going to take a break to hear from our final sponsor, Kind Bars. Have you ever tried a Kind Bar? You might have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. Well, if you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, we've got a special deal for you. Try 20 Kind Snacks from seven of their unique product lines with their new snack pack. Enjoy 50% off and free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through Snack Club, Kind's monthly snack subscription service. Go to kindsnacks.com TCC for more details. The snack pack has a perfect mix of kind favorites for all of your daily snacking needs. Do you like to start your day with whole grains? Try the oats and honey with toasted coconut granola clusters. Need to snack healthy while on the go? Enjoy a kind dark chocolate nuts and sea salt bar. Looking for plant-based protein? Take a bite of the crunchy peanut butter protein bar. We love that kind snacks are made in the United States with ingredients you can recognize and pronounce. They use high-quality, nutrient-dense whole ingredients like whole nuts and whole grains to keep your body and your taste buds happy. My favorite bars are the dark chocolate nuts with the sea salt and the peanut butter dark chocolate. But I also love putting the peanut butter whole grain clusters into my yogurt. So to get this deal, visit kindsnacks.com slash tcc to learn more and subscribe to the snack pack. That's kindsnacks.com slash tcc. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. 
Grace and Tommy got Jones and another sailor, Edward Lord, to assist in the plan. They also needed to have an independent witness to verify that Joe confessed. So Grace invited Ray Cole. Now, he is the editor for the Honolulu Advertiser to wait at the house that she was renting where they were going to bring Joe. So now they have, it's Grace, Thalia's mother, Tommy Massey, Jones, and Lord. So there's three naval officers, the mother-in-law, and now an editor from a newspaper all knows about this, that they're going to kidnap Joe. Which is crazy. Yes. They decided to try and trick Joe into getting into a car alone after he left the territorial building where he had to go for his probation meeting once a day. To do this, Grace is going to make a fake summons by printing on a piece of paper the following. Territorial Police, Major Ross commanding summons to appear, Kahahawe Joe. That's it. And she even spelled territorial wrong. (laughs) So, Grace also is going to cut out a paragraph from a newspaper and put it on the fake summons. And the paragraph contained is totally irrelevant to a summons, but it read, Life is a mysterious and exciting affair, and anything can be a thrill if you know how to look for it and what to do with opportunity when it comes. Why would you put that on there? It's so weird. It's so weird. To complete their amateur forgery, they put a seal from a diploma that Tommy had received from completing a course at the naval base of chemical warfare. What the So it was like an official naval base seal they put on it. (laughs) So at 8 a.m. on the morning of January 8th, Joe Kahahawai reported to his probation officer as he was ordered to. His cousin was in attendance with him this morning. As he was inside, two cars pulled up outside the offices. One was the car of Jones and the other was a rented Buick sedan. Once Joe and his cousin came out of the building, Jones approached him and gave him the fake summons. He told him, as per the summons, that he was supposed to appear before Major Ross, the High Sheriff of Honolulu. Wanting to make sure he was doing the right thing, Joe went with Jones in the waiting Buick sedan. Soon after Joe went into the back seat of the car, his cousin saw another man, who he said was wearing a fake mustache, get out of another car, and get into the black sedan with his cousin and the other man. Joe's cousin thought that this was odd, and he couldn't help but think of the attack that took place on Horace Ida, so his defense was up. When the black sedan pulled away, the car the fake mustached man got out of followed right after them. Then the two cars went in the opposite direction of the police station, And Joe's cousin knew right away something was wrong. So he's going to call the police and report a kidnapping. Smart. It was smart. It was good that he was there. If he wasn't there. Meanwhile, Joe was being driven to the cottage that was being rented by Thalia's mother. Cole, remember he was the editor of the newspaper, who was supposed to be the witness, was sick that morning. So he wasn't able to make it to the kidnapping. It's very unfortunate. (laughs) 
Um, so he's not there. So Cole is not there. So that kind of messes up their plan of having that separate witness, right? Yeah. So it kind of is almost like Cole's absence from the kidnapping allows it to become what it will become. We'll never truly know what happened to Joe once he was brought to the cottage by his kidnappers. What we do know is very little. Joe was tied to a chair and questioned while a 32 caliber pistol was pointed at him. During the questioning, he was shot in the chest. He died from massive internal bleeding as the bullet punctured the lower part of his left lung and stopped right before his spine. Now, we don't know this, but some people, some police officers have told media sources that he was, his body was cut up. His body was cut up? Like they cut, they, they uh, dismembered his body post-mortem. Oh, oh, great. Yeah. Controversy still surrounds who was the one to actually shoot Joe. And kill him. The kidnappers turned murderers put Joe's body into the car that Grace had rented, that black sedan, and they pulled down the shades to hide the interior. They started driving towards Cocoa Head to dispose of the body, less than half an hour after the broadcast to be on the lookout for the Buick. Detective George Harbottle, who had worked on the Massey rape case, spotted the Buick matching the description with its shades pulled down and gave chase. Harbottle tried to get the female driver to pull over, but she refused, even after he fired two shots in the air. He eventually forced the car to the side of the road. He placed the occupants under arrest, Grace, who was driving, Tommy Massey, and Lord. Then he opened the back door of the car and saw a white bundle tied with rope. A human leg was sticking out from under the covering, and it was cold. Kahahawe was on his way to being thrown into the sea. It is believed that Joe's killers were heading to what was known as the blowhole, a crevice in a volcanic rock near Cocoa Head. When waves hit the crevice, tremendous pressure blasts water up like a geyser. If they had managed to throw Joe into this natural formation, his body might have never been found. Which would have been great for them. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been perfect. But they perfect. couldn't get there. Yeah. At the Massey household, investigators found Thalia and Albert Jones, who was drunk. Jones had a magazine from the thirty-two caliber pistol with eight bullets in it, as well as a phony summons that had lured Joe to his death. Prior to this, Thalia's sister, Helen Fortescue, had hidden the pistol used to kill Joe. At Grace's cottage, investigators found evidence of the murder, including the same type of rope used to tie Joe's body that they found in the car. The newspaper photos of Joe, bloodstains and signs that someone had tried to clean up the crime scene. They never revealed whether or not the body was dismembered after. I'm sure, I think that if it was, though, that they would have mentioned that. So I think it is more of a rumor. The evidence was overwhelming, and the trio found with the body and Albert Jones were charged with first-degree murder. What seemed to happen was that Jones was a part of the kidnapping, but then once he was kidnapped, Jones drove back to the Massey household and like kind of switched spots with um, Lord. So that's why Lord was there upon arrest, whereas Jones was there upon 
kidnapping. Okay. They were booked, fingerprinted, and their mugshots were taken, as would be done with any other suspect. But the similarities ended there. Admiral Sterling intervened and demanded that the custody of the suspects be handed over to the Navy. They were three naval men. After some negotiations, Harry Hewitt, the Attorney General of the Territory of Hawaii, agreed to let the Navy take custody on the condition that they was that it was clear that the civil authorities in Hawaii had jurisdiction and the defendants would be made available when called for. The authorities in Hawaii knew that this was risky because the Navy could have spirited the defendants away to the mainland beyond the reach of the law enforcement of Hawaii. So it was pretty dangerous that they gave these three men up. Sterling had the defendants housed on the docked ship, the USS Alton, that was used for visiting VIPs. They were treated more like heroes than felons by the Navy. And there was such an outpouring of support, especially for Grace Fortescue, that the entire top of the ship and other available spaces were covered in flowers sent by well-wishers. Soon the guards had to refuse to accept any more flowers because there was no place to put them. The remaining four Aha Moana defendants were taken to jail for their own protection. So now these four men are in jail, and they're living like... The ones that actually killed somebody are living like royalty in a fucking military ship. Right. (laughs) So Joe Kahahawe's funeral was held on January 10th, 1932. It was described as being the largest funeral in Hawaii for someone who was not royal blood. The people of Hawaii, especially those of Hawaiian blood, saw Joe's death as a gross injustice and a metaphor of the treatment of the non-whites on the island. A grand jury was assembled to decide whether the four would be indicted. The jury repeatedly asked the judge questions about whether or not they can just let the defendants go. All but two members of the grand jury were white. The judge, after dismissing one unruly soon-to-be police commissioner and delivering a speech that was worthy of Matthew McConaughey's performance in A Time to Kill, told them that they basically needed to, like, cut the bullshit out like we're not going to let them go you have a service here as a member of the grand jury to hear the evidence and if there is enough evidence to indict you have to do so despite what your personal feelings may be right you cannot bring any prejudice to this grand jury hearing like stop (laughs) come on this is crazy town i know but grace fortescue was not going to go down so finally after many weeks, the four were indicted, and the defendants were facing the charge of second-degree murder. So it's basically like manslaughter. It's like, oh, you kidnapped someone, tortured them, killed them? Second degree. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it is crazy. It is. But Grace Fortescue was not going to go down without a fight. She enlisted the defense of one of America's most famous lawyers, Clarence Darrow. This was very strange and shocked many Americans, as Darrow was considered a legal mastermind and a hero that championed for the rights of the lower class. He was known for most of his work with labor unions during the times of unfair and cruel labor practices by employers. Yes, he defended murderers Leopold and Loeb, which we won't get into because we definitely want to cover that one, but he only did so because he did not believe in the death penalty, and the two boys were facing death penalty. 
Darrow is most famous, however, for the Scopes trial, when John T. Scopes, a substitute science teacher, tried to teach the theory of evolution to a Tennessee classroom. Big mistake, buddy. Um, also, you're a substitute. Calm down. What are you doing? <laughs> Tell him, Kay. I, I, we need substitute teachers like that. I come in, my room's a mess when I come back. Darrow defended the teacher and his right to separate the classroom and church law, thus declaring the Butler Act unconstitutional. But now, here he was, basically defending four people who killed a now 22-year-old man. But Darrow took this case for one reason. Money. The Depression hit everyone hard, and because of this, Darrow was unable to retire. However, he took this case... However, if he took this case, he would be able to retire the way he planned with the money made. And this was a pretty large case. Grace Fortescue and her family agreed to take the money out of the trust to pay the $40,000 fee, which would come to about three quarters of a million today. Wow. Okay. This decision was made after the NAACP released a statement announcing that the first lynching of 1932 took place, and it happened on January 8th when Joe was murdered. So the NAACP came out and said that, and then she was like, oh my God, we need to get a good defense attorney. Hmm. Because now you got the weight of the NAACP coming down on you. When Darrow came in, he tried to place... When Darrow came in, he tried to play into the emotions that existed after the attack and the rape of Thalia Massey. Remember when everyone was so angry. So he's trying to get everyone back to that place. He called the murder an honor killing. That a mother and a husband killed Joe in order to avenge the honor of their daughter and wife, Thalia. Darrow is going to argue temporary insanity due to heightened emotions. And after a four-hour closing argument, Darrow's efforts proved unsuccessful. The The jury did not like the fact that he talked to them like he felt, they felt that Darrow talked to them like they were stupid. So they didn't like that. So they kind of thought he was coming in treating them like they weren't as smart as they were. So that kind of rubbed people the wrong way. All four defendants were found guilty and sentenced to 10 years apiece. Nothing but something all the same. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in a dramatic turn of events, the governor of Hawaii exercised his executive clemency and he commuted the defendant's sentence down to one hour. To one hour? One hour. And when he told them, he had ready a bottle of champagne to share with the four of them. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way. They got away with murder. That's crazy. That's crazy. Isn't that insane? It is. It really is. So, you may be asking yourself, what happened to the Masseys? I'll let you know. So, Thalia Massey was clearly a troubled individual. Before and after the whole Massey affair is what it became known as. Thalia never showed any regret or acknowledgement that her allegations implicated the wrong men leading to the murders of Joe, leading to the murder of Joe. On February 23rd, 1940, on February 23rd, 1934, Thalia filed for divorce in Reno, Nevada. 
So he got divorced three years later. She later remarried, but that marriage also ended in divorce. And over the years, she made several suicide attempts. On July 2nd, 1963, Thalia committed suicide at her home in Palm Beach, Florida, with an overdose of barbiturates. Tommy Massey married a woman named Florence Storms in 1937. His new wife made international headlines in 1938 when she, when she was... When she was slapped by a Japanese sentry while in a Japanese-occupied China. The Japanese sentry, angry but unaware that Florence did not understand his orders, slapped her across the face. The matter was diplomatically resolved when representatives from the Japanese Naval Department expressed regret for the incident and assured the United States Consul that China and the sentry would be punished. <laughs> I feel like... It's, I think that reveals a lot, though, that Thalia must have been suffering from some type of depression, maybe mental illness. Either way, she got attacked that night. Yeah. Do I think that the right people were accused? I don't think so. You don't? I don't know. I, I think that if the bulletin was never put out, that would have solved everything. Because they're implying that all of this information that she newly remembered came from the police bulletin. I agree with that part. So I get that. Because it is kind of crazy. Oh my God, you all of a sudden remember everything. But don't forget, this probably was a traumatic event that took place. And you kind of block it out. And you don't want to... And you remember as time goes on. That is something that happens. So I don't think it's weird that her memories are coming back slowly. I see what you're saying. Okay, but, I mean... But to not be able to see and then be able to see is strange. Well, to say that you're legally blind and you can't see without your glasses... Then you didn't see without your glasses. Then you doesn't matter how close that person is, you can't see. Right. You could make out blurred, you know, a blurred um, outline of someone, but if you're legally blind, you're legally blind. Right, so I, I agree with that. You know, um, as far as what I think, I think that I don't... I think that that like with the five men and everything, that's all so cool. Like coincidence, coinc- it really is. Um, the one thing I like, it keeps in the back of my mind. It's like I know she was attacked. Right. I want to say I I think she was raped. Yeah, I think the bruises. Yeah, imply she was that attacked. She, was raped. she yeah. was raped. That I agree with. What I don't agree with is who was charge for it i think it's easy to use those five islander boys as a scapegoat for a larger fish yeah like maybe that it was someone maybe a group of white men it could have been a group of white men navy could have been some a naval Um, officer um or there's just a crazy coincidence that it was a group of island men well i mean it is hawaii right and then she heard that take place and she goes oh that must be the guys and then but then is it a coincidence that two of them were convicted for a gang rape like that's a crazy coincidence for me it is it is it is but as we talked about though what they were convicted of that's also shady Mm -hmm. because like we said maybe there was consent with that with that woman right and she just was embarrassed. She didn't want to admit to her mother. Yeah, or she could have been coerced into saying that at the end. You don't know. So that's what I'm saying. You're using that as, oh, well, there's priors. And I even said it, there's priors. I, but... I don't want 
the the racism thing is super prevalent here, but I also don't want it to distract us from the actual evidence. Only because, like I said in the beginning of this episode, history repeats itself. So remember the case of Sacco and Vanzetti, the Italian yes. immigrants, and they were kind of railroaded because they were Italian. But later on, we find out that, yes, one of the men was guilty yes. through ballistics. I, I, all I'm so trying to, yeah. I don't want it to, the fact that, oh, this these poor islanders were railroaded by which the rich white people of the island. I don't kind of want it to get past the fact that some of this evidence is kind of crazy and the coincidences kind of can't be ignored sometimes. I agree with you, right? I'm just playing devil's advocate. And you know what? I love doing that too. I just think that this time period, the circumstances that led white folk there in the first place showed a dominance. Showed a dominance. I think that there's more... There's just more involved than even, like, what we're talking about. Listen, listen. At the end of the day, you're white, I'm white, right? Yeah. There's things that we'll never understand about other... About a struggle. About the struggle. the feelings, yeah. And we can't pretend like we will. No. But and I, and I think that the only thing that we can say for certain is that she was attacked. Yes. She was raped. Yes. Her mind... She might not have been there. She might have not have been playing with a full deck. That's another thing. Yeah, That's I don't possible. think she was. I mean, I'm not being too nice about it, but you know what I'm trying it to say. It could have been people that just didn't like her because she was so snobby. True. And it could be that they used them as scapegoat, as a scapegoat. Right. I, I don't know. I think that the whole thing with the prior event that took place with the boys, I think is that is... A crazy coincidence. A crazy coincidence. It, ha- it could have nothing to do with them at all. Right. So I just think that maybe she was hiding... Who really did this? Yeah. I just think the fact that Thalia's attack aside, four people kidnapped someone, tortured them, shot them, and were driving to dispose of the body, were arrested upon disposal of the body, and only had to serve one hour in prison. Right. So what does that tell you? That shows... That's insane. That shows influence, can be having, having a lot of connections. Right. Being rich. Mm-hmm. See, I don't even think she had to hire Clarence Darrow. I think she could have just had a public defender and that the that he have would have done the same thing, the governor. Could it have been that she just wanted as much spotlight on her as possible by having the best lawyer in the world, uh, in the United Quite States? Quite possibly. I think she wanted the best. That's what I right. think. So it was just to make it bigger? I can't believe it's just This is such a crazy trial. I truly don't know what happened to Thalia, but I know what happened to Joe was an injustice. Oh, what happened to him was terrible, whether or not he did it or not. It was a lynching. That's what it was. So, I don't know. It It's hard. It's a hard one. It is a really it's a hard, hard one. one. I think, I think um, 30 episodes into our podcast, I feel like there's not an easy one to just say, hey, this I, is I what think happened. It's it. Yeah, I know. But this one, it's hard. There's a lot of history. Yes. Um, There's a lot. There's yeah. a lot going on with this. We definitely want to know what you guys think. And it's this was this is a crazy one. Yeah. I, d- I truly do not know what happened to Thalia, but I do know what happened to Joe was, and Horace Ida because he was also tortured as well. Yes, is just wrong, so wrong. The whole thing is wrong. And I like I, and like I said previous, I'm glad that There's we've no come a long here. way. No, 
And I'm glad we've come a long way yeah, from 1930. Yeah, there's no winners in this trial. What we want to do right now, though, guys, is just discuss some of our Patreon supporters. John and I cannot tell you enough how much we appreciate you donating to us, no matter what you're donating, whether it's $15 or a dollar. It really means so much, and it helps us a lot. So we just want to give some shout-outs. First, we want to talk about our VIP Patreons, special ones. Dan Craft, we want to thank you so much for all the love that you've given us and making us feel like we're doing a good job, and thank you for your service. Pat McDonald, Dan and Pat are both holding strong at $15. You guys are amazing, and we love you so much. Our other VIPs are Dana Kinnaughton. Dana, please, I hope I'm saying your name right. And if I'm not, don't stop loving us. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Pam Cree, thank you so much. And Alicia Reeves, um, who is my documentary go-to, like watching buddy. Thanks for everything. And our last VIP, Valerie Castro, who's definitely invited to the wedding. <laughs> At this point, yeah. Yes. We appreciate your contribution so much. Our Patreon supporters, who are just as amazing and always so charming, are Hunter Goff. Lauren Benkel, Jessu Kim, Anthony Clapper, Nicole Berg, Cara DeVar, Linda Martinelli, who is such an amazingly strong woman, Angie Rush, Lindsay C., Kelly Vandeveer, Shondell Young, Justin Tinkman, our day one. He was day our first one. one. Uh, Kathy Rodnight, Amber, Amber Foutswaggy. Emily Koffenberger, Tracy Bousseau, Kimberly O'Rain, Julie, just Julie, I like that, Susan Broden, Kelly Wiley, Gemma Fry, Annie Gibson, our favorite, Mike Sellis, Gwendolyn Hawk, Lucky Jean, Lynn Aya, Daniel H., Alexis Olms, Christine Soler, Kia Johnson, Kim Nixon, Jessica Brand, Tiffany Stallings, Catherine Peitch, Holly Parker, Ashley Nutt, Joshua Smith, Natalie Favre, Megan Wood, Jem, Elizabeth Gorman, Robin Vero, Alyssa Holman, Melanie Brandy, Uber Speak Polish, Kaylin DeSantos, Lynn Dugai, Carissa Snyder, Blakely Brogan, Brugman, Justin Hart, Katie Pace, Angela Stiles, Linda Pincher, Jen Paradiso, Jordan, Laura L., and Helen Foster. Thank you so much, guys. We couldn't do this without you, and we appreciate everything. Thanks for being part of the team, guys. I know. All right. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.